Chapter 46 of The Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Meanwhile, in the Butler home, the family was assembling for dinner. Mrs. Butler was sitting in rotund complacency at the foot of the table, her gray hair combed straight back from her round, shiny forehead. She had on a dark gray silk dress, trimmed with gray and white striped ribbon. It suited her florid temperament admirably. Eileen had dictated her mother's choice and had seen that it had been properly made. Nora was refreshingly youthful in a pale green dress with red velvet cuffs and collar. She looked young, slender, gay. Her eyes, complexion, and hair were fresh and healthy. She was trifling with a string of coral beads which her mother had just given her. "'Oh, look, Callum,' she said to her brother opposite her, who was drumming idly on the table with his knife and fork. "'Aren't they lovely? Mama gave them to me.' "'Mama does more for you than I would. You know what you'd get from me, don't you?' "'What?' He looked at her teasingly. For answer, Nora made a face at him. Just then, Owen came in and took his place at the table. Mrs. Butler saw Nora's grimace. "'Well, that'll win no love from your brother. You can depend on that,' she commented. "'Lord, what a day,' observed Owen, wearily, unfolding his napkin. "'I've had my fill of work for once.' "'What's the trouble?' queried his mother, feelingly. "'No real trouble, mother,' he replied. "'Just everything. Ducks and drakes, that's all.' "'Well, you must eat a good hearty meal now, and that'll refresh you,' observed his mother, genially and feelingly. Thompson, she was referring to the family grocer, brought us the last of his beans. You must have some of those. Sure, beans'll fix whatever it is, Owen, joked Callum. Mother's got the answer. They're fine, I'd have you know, replied Mrs. Butler, quite unconscious of the joke. No doubt of it, Mother, replied Callum. Real brain food. Let's feed some to Nora. "'You'd better eat some yourself, Smarty. "'My, but you're gay. "'I suppose you're going out to see somebody. "'That's why.' "'Right you are, Nora. "'Smart girl, you. Five or six. Ten to fifteen minutes each. "'I'd call on you if you were nicer.' "'You would if you got the chance,' mocked Nora. "'I'd have you know I wouldn't let you. "'I'd feel very bad if I couldn't get somebody better than you.' "'As good as you mean,' corrected Callum. "'Children, children,' interpolated Mrs. Butler, calmly, looking about for old John, the servant. "'You'll be losing your tempers in a minute. Hush now. Here comes your father. Where's Eileen?' Butler walked heavily in and took his seat. John, the servant, appeared, bearing a platter of beans, among other things, and Mrs. Butler asked him to send someone to call Eileen. "'It's getting colder, I'm thinking,' said Butler, by way of conversation, and eyeing Eileen's empty chair. She would come soon now, his heavy problem. He had been very tactful these last two months, avoiding any reference to Cowperwood in so far as he could help in her presence. "'It's colder,' remarked Owen, "'much colder. We'll soon see real winter now.' Old John began to offer the various dishes in order. But when all had been served, Eileen had not yet come. 
"'See where Eileen is, John,' observed Mrs. Butler interestedly. "'The meal will be getting cold.' Old John returned with the news that Eileen was not in her room. "'Sure she must be somewhere,' commented Mrs. Butler, only slightly perplexed. "'She'll be coming, though, never mind, if she wants to. She knows it's mealtime.' The conversation drifted from a new waterworks that was being planned to the new city hall, then nearing completion, Cowperwood's financial and social troubles, and the state of the stock market generally, a new gold mine in Arizona, the departure of Mrs. Mullenhauer the following Tuesday for Europe, with appropriate comments by Nora and Callum, and a Christmas ball that was going to be given for charity. Eileen will be wanting to go to that, commented Mrs. Butler. I'm going, you bet, put in Nora. Who's going to take you, asked Colum. That's my affair, mister, she replied smartly. The meal was over, and Mrs. Butler strolled up to Eileen's room to see why she had not come down to dinner. Butler entered his den, wishing so much that he could take his wife into his confidence concerning all that was worrying him. On his desk, as he sat down and turned up the light, he saw the note. He recognized Eileen's handwriting at once. What could she mean by writing him? A sense of the untoward came to him, and he tore it open slowly, and, putting on his glasses, contemplated it solemnly. So Eileen was gone. The old man stared at each word as if it had been written in fire. She said she had not gone with Cowperwood. It was possible, just the same, that he had run away from Philadelphia and taken her with him. This was the last straw. This ended it. Eileen lured away from home. To where? To what? Butler could scarcely believe, though, that Cowperwood had tempted her to do this. He had too much at stake. It would involve his own and Butler's families. The papers would be certain to get it quickly. He got up, crumbling the paper in his hand, and turned about at a noise. His wife was coming in. He pulled himself together and shoved the letter in his pocket. "'Eileen's not in her room,' she said curiously. "'She didn't say anything to you about going out, did she?' "'No,' he replied truthfully, wondering how soon he should have to tell his wife. "'That's odd,' observed Mrs. Butler doubtfully. "'She must have gone out after something. It's a wonder she wouldn't tell somebody.' Butler gave no sign. He dared not. She'll be back, he said, more in order to gain time than anything else. He was sorry to have to pretend. Mrs. Butler went out, and he closed the door. Then he took out the letter and read it again. The girl was crazy. She was doing an absolutely wild, inhumane, senseless thing. Where could she go except to Cowperwood? She was on the verge of a public scandal, and this would produce it. There was just one thing to do, as far as he could see. Cowperwood, if he were still in Philadelphia, would know. He would go to him, threaten, cajole, actually destroy him if necessary. Eileen must come back. She need not go to Europe, perhaps, but she must come back and behave herself, at least until Cowperwood could legitimately marry her. That was all he could expect now. She would have to wait, and some day, perhaps, he could bring himself to accept her wretched proposition. Horrible thought. It would kill her mother, disgrace her sister, 
He got up, took down his hat, put on his overcoat, and started out. Arriving at the Cowperwood home, he was shown into the reception room. Cowperwood, at the time, was in his den looking over some private papers. When the name of Butler was announced, he immediately went downstairs. It was characteristic of the man that the announcement of Butler's presence created no stir in him whatsoever. So Butler had come. That meant, of course, that Eileen had gone. Now for a battle, not of words, but of weights of personalities. He felt himself to be intellectually, socially, and in every other way the more powerful man of the two. The spiritual content of him, which we call life, hardened to the texture of steel. He recalled that although he had told his wife and his father that the politicians, of whom Butler was one, were trying to make a scapegoat of him, Butler, nevertheless, was not considered to be wholly alienated as a friend, and civility must prevail. He would like very much to placate him, if he could, to talk out the hard facts of life in a quiet and friendly way. But this matter of Eileen had to be adjusted, now, once and for all. And, with that thought in his mind, he walked quickly into Butler's presence. The old man, when he learned that Cowperwood was in and would see him, determined to make his contact with the financier as short and effective as possible. He moved the least bit when he heard Cowperwood's step, as light and springy as ever. "'Good evening, Mr. Butler,' said Cowperwood cheerfully, when he saw him extending his hand. "'What can I do for you?' "'You can take that away from in front of me, for one thing,' said Butler, grimly referring to his hand. "'I've no need of it. It's my daughter I've come to talk to you about, and I want plain answers. Where is she?' "'You mean Eileen?' said Cowperwood, looking at him with steady, curious, unrevealing eyes, and merely interpolating this to obtain a moment for reflection. What can I tell you about her? You can tell me where she is, that I know, and you can make her come back to her home where she belongs. It was bad fortune that ever brought you across my doorstep, but I'll not bandy words with you here. You tell me where my daughter is, and you'll leave her alone from now on, or I'll... The old man's fist closed like a vice, and his chest heaved, with suppressed rage. "'You'll not be driving me too far, man, if you're wise,' he added, after a time, recovering his equanimity, in part. "'I want no truck with you. I want my daughter.' "'Listen, Mr. Butler,' said Cowperwood, quite calmly, relishing the situation for the sheer sense of superiority it gave him. "'I want to be perfectly frank with you, if you will let me. I may know where your daughter is, and I may not.' I may wish to tell you, and I may not. She may not wish me to. But unless you wish to talk with me in a civil way, there is no need of our going on any further. You are privileged to do what you like. Won't you come upstairs to my room? We can talk more comfortably there. Butler looked at his former protege in utter astonishment. He had never before in all his experience come up against a more ruthless type, suave, bland, forceful, unterrified. This man had certainly come to him as a sheep, and had turned out to be a raving wolf. His incarceration had not put him in the least awe. "'I'll not come up to your room,' Butler said. 
and you'll not get out of Philadelphia with her, if that's what you're planning. I can see to that. You think you have the upper hand of me? I see, and you're anxious to make something of it. Well, you're not. It wasn't enough that you come to me as a beggar, craving the help of me, and that I took you in and helped you all I could. You had to steal my daughter from me in the bargain. If it wasn't for the girl's mother and her sister and her brothers, decenter men than ever you'll know how to be, I'd bring you where you stand. Taking a young, innocent girl and making an evil woman out of her, and you a married man. It's a God's blessing for you that it's me and not one of my sons that's here talking to you, or you wouldn't be alive to say what you'd do. The old man was grim but impotent in his rage. I'm sorry, Mr. Butler, replied Cowperwood quietly. I'm willing to explain, but you won't let me. I'm not planning to run away with your daughter, nor to leave Philadelphia. You ought to know me well enough to know that I'm not contemplating anything of that kind. My interests are too large. You and I are practical men. We ought to be able to talk this matter over together and reach an understanding. I thought once of coming to you and explaining this, but I was quite sure you wouldn't listen to me. Now that you are here, I would like to talk to you. If you will come up to my room, I will be glad to. Otherwise, not. Won't you come up? Butler saw that Cowperwood had the advantage. He might as well go up. Otherwise, it was plain he would get no information. Very well, he said. Cowperwood led the way quite amicably, and having entered his private office, closed the door behind them. We ought to be able to talk this matter over and reach an understanding, he said again when they were in the room, and he had closed the door. I am not as bad as you think though I know I appear very bad. Butler stared at him in contempt. I love your daughter, and she loves me. I know you are asking yourself, how can I do this while I am still married? But I assure you I can, and that I do. I am not happily married. I had expected, if this panic hadn't come along, to arrange with my wife for a divorce and marry Eileen. My intentions are perfectly good. The situation, which you can complain of, of course, is the one you encountered a few weeks ago. It was indiscreet, but it was entirely human. Your daughter does not complain. She understands. At the mention of his daughter in this connection, Butler flushed with rage and shame, but he controlled himself. And you think because she doesn't complain that it's all right, do you? He asked sarcastically. From my point of view, yes. From yours, no. You have one view of life, Mr. Butler, and I have another. You're right there, put in Butler, for once anyhow. That doesn't prove that either of us is right or wrong. In my judgment, the present end justifies the means. The end I have in view is to marry Eileen. And if I can possibly pull myself out of this financial scrape that I am in, I will do so. Of course, I would like to have your consent for that, and so would Eileen. But if we can't, we can't. Cowperwood was thinking that while this might not have a very soothing effect on the old contractor's point of view, nevertheless, it must make some appeal to his sense of the possible or necessary. Eileen's present situation was quite unsatisfactory without marriage in view. 
and even if he, Cowperwood, was a convicted embezzler in the eyes of the public, that did not make him so. He might get free and restore himself, would certainly, and Eileen ought to be glad to marry him if she could under the circumstances. He did not quite grasp the depth of Butler's religious and moral prejudices. Lately, he went on, you have been doing all you can, as I understand it, to pull me down on account of Eileen. I suppose, but that is simply delaying what I want to do. You'd like me to help you do that, I suppose, suggested Butler, with infinite disgust and patience. I want to marry Eileen, Cowperwood repeated, for emphasis' sake. She wants to marry me. Under the circumstances, however you may feel, you can have no real objection to my doing that, I am sure. Yet you go on fighting me, making it hard for me to do what you really know ought to be done. You're a scoundrel, said Butler, seeing through his motives quite clearly. You're a sharper, to my way of thinking, and it's no child of mine I want connected with you. I'm not saying, seeing that things are as they are, that if you were a free man, it wouldn't be better that she should marry you. It's the one decent thing you could do, if you would, which I doubt. But that's neither here nor there. What can you want with her hid away somewhere? You can't marry her. You can't get a divorce. You've got your hands full fighting your lawsuits and keeping yourself out of jail. She'll only be an added expense to you, and you'll be wanting all the money you have for other things, I'm thinking. Why should you want to be taking her away from a decent home and making something out of her that you'd be ashamed to marry if you could? The least you could do, if you were any kind of man at all, and had any of that thing that you're pleased to call love, would be to leave her at home and keep her as respectable as possible. Mind you, I'm not thinking she isn't ten thousand times too good for you, whatever you've made of her. But if you had any sense of decency left, you wouldn't let her shame her family and break her old mother's heart, and that for no purpose except to make her worse than she is already. What good can you get out of it now? What good can you expect to come of it? By heavens, if you had any sense at all, I should think you could see that for yourself. You're only adding to your troubles, not taken away from them, and she'll not thank you for that later on. He stopped, rather astonished, that he should have been drawn into an argument. His contempt for this man was so great that he could scarcely look at him, but his duty and his need was to get Eileen back. Cowperwood looked at him as one who gives serious attention to another. He seemed to be thinking deeply over what Butler had said. To tell you the truth, Mr. Butler, he said, I did not want Eileen to leave your home at all, and she will tell you so, if you ever talk to her about it. I did my best to persuade her not to, and when she insisted on going, the only thing I could do was to be sure that she would be comfortable wherever she went. She was greatly outraged to think you should have put detectives on her trail. That, and the fact that you wanted to send her away somewhere against her will, was the principal reasons for her leaving. I assure you, I did not want her to go. I think you forget sometimes, Mr. Butler, that Eileen is a grown woman, and that she has a will of her own. You think I control her to her great disadvantage? As a matter of fact, I am very much in love with her, 
and have been for three or four years. And if you know anything about love, you know that it doesn't always mean control. I'm not doing Eileen any injustice when I say that she has had as much influence on me as I have had on her. I love her, and that's the cause of all the trouble. You come and insist that I should return your daughter to you. As a matter of fact, I don't know whether I can or not. I don't know that she would go if I wanted her to. She might turn on me and say that I didn't care for her any more. That's not true, and I would not want her to feel that way. She is greatly hurt, as I told you, by what you did to her and the fact that you want her to leave Philadelphia. You can do as much to remedy that as I can. I could tell you where she is, but I do not know that I want to. Certainly not until I know what your attitude toward her and this whole proposition is to be. He paused and looked calmly at the old contractor, who eyed him grimly in return. "'What proposition are you talking about?' asked Butler, interested by the peculiar development of this argument. In spite of himself, he was getting a slightly different angle on the whole situation. The scene was shifting to a certain extent. Cowperwood appeared to be reasonably sincere in the matter. His promises might be all wrong, but perhaps he did love Eileen, and it was possible that he did intend to get a divorce from his wife sometime and marry her. Divorce, as Butler knew, was against the rules of the Catholic Church, which he so much revered. The laws of God, in any sense of decency, commanded that Cowperwood should not desert his wife and children and take up with another woman, not even Eileen, in order to save her. It was a criminal thing to plan, sociologically speaking, and showed what a villain Cowperwood inherently was. But nevertheless, Cowperwood was not a Catholic. His views of life were not the same as his own. Butler's, and besides, and worst of all, no doubt due in part to Eileen's own temperament, he had compromised her situation very materially. She might not easily be restored to a sense of the normal and decent, and so the matter was worth taking into thought. Butler knew that ultimately he could not countenance any such thing, certainly not, and keep his faith with the church, but he was human enough, nonetheless, to consider it. Besides, he wanted Eileen to come back, and Eileen, from now on, he knew, would have some say as to what her future should be. "'Well, it's simple enough,' replied Cowperwood. "'I should like to have you withdraw your opposition to Eileen's remaining in Philadelphia, for one thing, and for another, I should like you to stop your attacks on me.' Cowperwood smiled in an ingratiating way. He hoped really to placate Butler in part by his generous attitude throughout this procedure. I can't make you do that, of course, unless you want to. I merely bring it up, Mr. Butler, because I am sure that if it hadn't been for Eileen, you would not have taken the course you have taken toward me. I understood you received an anonymous letter, and that afternoon you called your loan with me. Since then, I have heard from one source and another that you were strongly against me. I merely wish to say that I wish you wouldn't be. I am not guilty of embezzling any $60,000, and you know it. My intentions were of the best. I did not think I was going to fail at the time I used those certificates, and if it hadn't been for several other loans that were called, 
I would have gone on to the end of the month and put them back in time, as I always had. I've always valued your friendship very highly, and I'm very sorry to lose it. Now I have said all I am going to say. Butler looked at Cowperwood with shrewd, calculating eyes. The man had some merit, but much unconscionable evil in him. Butler knew very well how he had taken the check and a good many other things in connection with it. The manner in which he had played his cards tonight was on par with the way he had run to him on the night of the fire. He was just shrewd and calculating and heartless. "'I'll make you no promise,' he said. "'Tell me where my daughter is, and I'll think the matter over. You have no claim on me now, and owe you no good turn. But I'll think it over anyhow.' "'That's quite all right,' replied Cowperwood. "'That's all I can expect. But what about Eileen? Do you expect her to leave Philadelphia?' Not if she settles down and behaves herself, but there must be an end to this between you and her. She's disgracing her family and ruining her soul in the bargain, and that's what you are doing with yours. It'll be time enough to talk about anything else when you're a free man. More than that, I'll not promise. Cowperwood, satisfied that this move on Eileen's part had done her a real service, if it had not aided him especially, was convinced that it would be a good move for her to return to her home at once. He could not tell how his appeal to the state Supreme Court would eventuate. His motion for a new trial, which was now to be made under the privilege of the certificate of reasonable doubt, might not be granted, in which case he would have to serve a term in the penitentiary. If he were compelled to go to the penitentiary, she would be safer, better off in the bosom of her family. His own hands were going to be exceedingly full for the next two months until he knew how his appeal was coming out. And after that, well, after that, he would fight on whatever happened. During all the time that Cowperwood had been arguing his case in this fashion, he had been thinking of how he could adjust this compromise so as to retain the affection of Eileen and not offend her sensibilities by urging her to return. He knew that she would not agree to give up seeing him, and he was not willing that she should. Unless he had a good and sufficient reason, he would be playing a wretched part by telling Butler where she was. He did not intend to do so until he saw exactly how to do it, the way that would make it most acceptable to Eileen. He knew that she would not long be happy where she was. Her flight was due in part to Butler's intense opposition to himself and in part to his determination to make her leave Philadelphia and behave. But this last was now in part obviated. Butler, in spite of his words, was no longer a stern nemesis. He was a melting man, very anxious to find his daughter, very willing to forgive her. He was whipped, literally beaten, at his own game, and Cowperwood could see it in the old man's eyes. If he himself could talk to Eileen personally and explain just how things were, he felt sure he could make her see that it would be to their mutual advantage, for the present at least, to have the matter amicably settled. The thing to do was to make Butler wait somewhere, here possibly, while he went and talked to her. When she learned how things were, she would probably acquiesce. 
The best thing that I can do under the circumstances, he said, after a time, would be to see Eileen in two or three days and ask her what she wishes to do. I can explain the matter to her, and if she wants to go back, she can. I will promise to tell her anything that you say. Two or three days, exclaimed Butler irritably. Two or three fiddlesticks. She must come home tonight. Her mother doesn't know she's left the place yet. Tonight is the time. I'll go fetch her myself tonight. No, that won't do, said Cowperwood. I shall have to go myself. If you wish to wait here, I will see what can be done and let you know. Very well, grunted Butler, who was now walking up and down with his hands behind his back. But for heaven's sakes, be quick about it. There's no time to lose. He was thinking of Mrs. Butler. Cowperwood called the servant, ordered his runabout, and told George to see that his private office was not disturbed. Then as Butler strolled to and fro in this, to him, objectionable room, Cowperwood drove rapidly away. End of chapter 46